everyone in the theatre community has stayed so ridiculously positive. There was like nothing we'd ever seen before and I think that's one benefit of being online is that people feel able to, to reach out across oceans. Maintaining some sense of community has been a really special thing. Hello and welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. My name is Isabel Roberts and I'm Maddie Fisher. The last two Cambridge terms have been unlike any other, with Easter term being conducted entirely remotely whilst we were in lockdown 1.0. And this Michaelmas term has seen uncertainty, with varying levels of in-person teaching and significant restrictions on social events. Despite this, creative projects have persisted, with students finding innovative ways to overcome the challenges of remote collaboration. So today, we speak to students and staff at Cambridge about the impact COVID has had on their creative endeavours and the importance of the arts during challenging times. First up, we spoke to Alex Hyden-Williams and Kate Horn from BAIT, an art and culture zine at Cambridge. So what is BAIT? So BAIT is a creative zine run by students based in Cambridge, but open to people beyond the university. And it combines writing like poetry, prose, you know, short stories, some non-fiction articles with visual art, um, photography, paintings, that sort of thing. And we publish an issue every term on a different theme and then um, raising money for a different charity. I noticed that on your Facebook page you describe yourself as like a radical zine. In what ways would you say that you're radical? The zine was founded in 2017 in response to the money burning scandal that um, happened when a Cambridge student um, tried to burn some money in front of a homeless person. And so the zine kind of started as this sort of fundraise, give back to the community, kind of in opposition to a lot of the political tensions that were going on. We kind of, I think, are trying to sort of keep some of the political motivations, both in fundraising, but also in sort of the the content that we publish. And I think um, raising money for charity is, is quite a big element of that as well, because sometimes it can feel like when you're a Cambridge student poet writing poetry that gets read by other Cambridge student poets, you're kind of very much in a bubble. But by getting people to put together this amazing creative product and then uh, pay for it, we can directly through poetry give back to the community um, and to, to local charities or to international ones. It feels quite different to just putting your poetry out there into the world and maybe a few people read it and enjoy it. And how does bait work in normal times? I think in, in some ways, a lot of the sort of system that we already had going in sort of normal times has been retained. That the, the main kind of structure is each term, decide a theme and sort of advertise that we're looking for submissions. And then normally we'd sort of, once the submissions deadline is closed, we all sort of go and meet up in a little classroom somewhere and kind of go through all of them and sort of curate it, um, but sort of it's translated quite well online. Um, sort of beyond that, in normal times, it was generally the process of actually making the zine was always fairly distant in some ways because it's, it's sort of something that everyone could kind of work on individually 
but then virtually on our sort of big group chat would just all be working together that way and obviously the launch event which we would do at the end of the term would be a big um, in-person event. And I think that the secret that no one tells you is that running a Cambridge zine is basically just looking at messenger chats and uh, Google Drive folders a lot of the time. But yeah, it's I think that the launch event is a night. Uh, it was always a really nice opportunity to like actually see people and interact with other RT people in Cambridge. Um, and I think it's probably probably the biggest loss is that we can't do that in person. Yeah, I was going to ask a bit more about the launch parties. Like, what what do you usually do for them, and and what are you now currently doing under lockdown? It was always sort of quite a nice sort of opportunity to collaborate with other organisations in in Cambridge, sort of the local area, kind of because we'd sort of find a venue somewhere. Our Lent twenty twenty launch event, which was the last one that we were able to do was a collaboration with Motion Sickness, which is this really, really cool sort of art collection that was in the Lion's Yard shopping centre. Um, and we'd sort of get people in, have a live DJ set, decorate with lots of fairy lights, make it look very, very cool, and sort of have people reading and just a sort of like quite chilled out sort of way to meet people and kind of really see the people that have created the magazine. Yeah, and our, our online equivalent of that was a um which we'll be doing again this issue was to ask submitters to send in a video or an audio recording of themselves either reading their poetry or talking about their art which um i think meant we could replicate quite nicely the section in the middle of the launch party where people would talk um and make it like a almost like a little like bait podcast in a way and i I think the feedback we got from people generally seemed like Everyone just enjoyed seeing faces and hearing people talk about their art and getting a sense of community across in that way. Because I think just names on a screen can feel quite impersonal sometimes. But yeah, I think I, I agree with Kate that the uh, the meeting people uh, and the, the doing things in person bit is, is a, a sad loss. Because I think it's been going on here for so long. I was just reading um, in the latest TLS that apparently Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes met at a Cambridge zine launch in 1958 or something. So it's obviously been going on for a while, that kind of arty mingling. And we try our best to recreate it, knowing that there are elements that just don't happen online and can't. I was wondering, since obviously your last two issues have been during the COVID period, have you noticed a change in the number and types of submissions? That you're getting? Yeah, so bait grew an awful lot um, over the past year. Like our Michaelmas 2019 issue had something like 60 submissions, and the one that we've just closed submissions for um, a year later had 185. So it's been a pretty, pretty huge growth. And I think some of that might be um, lockdown related because I think everyone has more time on their hands and is getting more involved with things like zines that can operate online. Yeah, I think as well, uh, in terms of the the types of submissions, it has been interesting to see that there has been sort of a widening, I'd say, kind of in recent issues, which, you know, may or may not be related to it being online. I don't know. But for, for example, our, our first online edition, it was also an open theme because it was sort of quite a strange circumstance. Bait has always been quite open, but I think it was sort of, for a while, seemed quite poetry and photography driven. But we got more paintings, more prose. It was quite varied. 
our first online edition. And I think perhaps as well, maybe because we were publishing it online, I think sometimes if it's sort of just a physical zine, people might think sort of, oh, they can't submit anything too long, when actually we don't really have a limit on words. And um, can you tell me about the upcoming issue of Bait? We've got issue 10, which is very exciting, on just in itself to be on 10 issues, and it's on borders, which was a theme we'd sort of been thinking about using for quite a while, because it's quite suggestive of political topics, and we wanted to get some more kind of political writing in, I think. We were a bit worried it was very, very depoliticised at one point, but I think we've we've got back to the kind of radical edge. And it's our longest issue yet. I think it's something like 112 pages in total, which for a termly magazine we've we've kind of realised is, is basically a lot. But there's a huge amount of brilliant, brilliant writing and art. Um, and there's a, a really wide range of perspectives as well. I think we've had people submitting from other countries for the first time, which has been incredibly exciting. We've got a a poet based in India who submitted a really beautiful, very long poem that was like nothing we'd ever seen before. And I think that's one benefit of being online is that people feel able to, to reach out across oceans. Whilst Bait have had to do all their work remotely this term, some societies have been able to continue operating socially distanced in person. Salwyn Bass, Fred Duffin, and junior organ scholar Yvette Murphy speak to us about how Salwyn College Choir continued both in the first and second lockdowns. So can you tell me what Salwyn Choir is normally like? So usually at Salwyn we do free services a week with occasional complins and other concerts. Is it something through normal time that really helps balance with terms? It works quite well in terms of structuring days in that it gives you kind of a clear end point. And I think it's quite useful for the college community and the members of the congregation who want to come and attend. And what kind of music do you normally perform? Well, the services that we sing are choral evening songs. So there's a range of music from throughout the ages. And there is something really special in Salmon Choir because we perform a work by a female composer in every service, which is quite rare among colleges. And so it's nice to perform music that is underperformed within the repertoire. And so obviously back in March when lockdown hit, some choirs ended their normal day-to-day practices and others continued. What happened with Selwyn? So at Selwyn, we nearly entirely stopped our normal free services week for just one service Sunday. And for that, we would all contribute MP3 files Yeah, in order to make the editing process a bit easier, the choir was split into two halves so that there were less MP3 files to put together per service. So every week, half of the choir would perform their individual tracks at home in their living rooms, or in my case, outside of my back door, much to the delight of the neighbours. And what was it like recording the music? At first, it was a novelty, and that was quite fun. But that wore off. I think, different times, different people. But I think by the end of term, it was fairly safe to say that people found it quite a laborious process. I completely agree. It is really hard to sing on your own in terms of tuning. And it just hasn't got the nice community atmosphere that you usually have in cell and choir. However, I would say that I think the most amazing thing about it was watching back the services. And that was where there really was a sense of community. And I think it's just amazing that Cell and Choir managed to prove that COVID can't come in the way of creativity. And so then obviously we came back to term uh, late September and choirs in Cambridge, most of them resumed. 
but obviously it wasn't that long before lockdown 2.0 hit and there it kind of varied what colleges did through this um, time period and there have been some concerns raised on anonymous platform sites such as Grudgebridge about the safety of choirs operating through the lockdown 2.0. So what's happened with Selwyn Choir? Are you still functioning as normal and if so what measures have been put in place to make it safe? Well at the start of the year the Dean of Selwyn, Charlotte Summers, who is also works in intensive care at Addenbrooke's, gave us a talk about the safety measures that had been put in place to ensure the choir was COVID friendly and that if we followed these measures as a choir, there should not be any issue with singing. So at the start of the year, we had a congregation um, which was socially distanced alongside the choir. However, when lockdown started, the congregation weren't allowed to attend services anymore, so we've been live streaming the services instead which has given a lot more space for the choir to spread out throughout the whole chapel to ensure that we really are two metres plus away from each other. Has it been a really positive thing to have the choir go through lockdown 2.0? I know you mentioned before that maybe some of the community aspect was lost by doing recordings. So has it actually been quite nice to be able to continue or at times has been uh, quite difficult? I feel like particularly for the freshers who make up quite a large proportion of this year's fire it's been a really invaluable experience of them kind of meeting up with people outside of their household and so maintaining some sense of community has been a really special thing I'm certainly happy that we haven't gone back to solo remote recording I think it's been a really valuable experience however I do think that it is quite hard to be creative when you don't have the freedom to go out and do the other aspects of your life I would also say that a lot of people have been in and out of isolation, which has made choir quite difficult at times with people disappearing hours before the service. So it's been exciting in a way. And what's your engagement with your online services like? So it tends to be the larger services, like when we perform the Jerusalem Requiem, up to about 100 people watching the live stream and then views on the Selwyn College YouTube channel have increased even after that. The engagement with the recordings that we've been putting up online has definitely been more positive and larger than the typical engagement we get with services in person. Our congregations aren't huge on a normal weekday service or even on Sundays, partly because the chapel isn't a huge space. So being online has really allowed us to reach a wider community of people outside of Selwyn. If and when, hopefully, society kind of resumes and choirs can operate as normal, do you think it's likely that there will be more recorded content that's put up online? following how, how it's been shown that it can be done? I certainly hope so. I think there's something really valuable about having something to show for services. Some of our services only have a few people attending, and I think that we can do more to reach people. I think there's something quite beautiful about having something to look back over, both as a performer, but also as someone who might want to attend a service outside of a typical Tuesday at 6pm. Okay, and quite a fun last question. We're obviously coming up to Christmas, you know, we're nearly at Bridgemas when we record this interview. So I'm just wondering, what is your favourite Christmas song? Well, I would say mine is one which I kind of discovered with the choir last Christmas in Talk to You Below. Partially for the Christmassy feel of something new, which I discovered just then. And also, obviously, all of the fond memories of having our choir week. And mine would have to be White Christmas. Here is a clip of Selwyn College Choir singing Upon Your Heart by Eleanor Daly at their online service back in June. This anthem was recorded entirely remotely whilst all members were in lockdown at home.
Some students were committed to spreading positivity during the first lockdown, when many students were back home through innovative ideas. Tom Magashi created Cambray Vision, an online competition where students from Cambridge and beyond could vote for their favourite Eurovision entry. Can you tell me what Camera Vision was and why you started it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've had a kind of long, <laughs> I'm going to sound like I'm writing my uh, UCAS personal statement here, but a long passion for Eurovision. Um, yeah, I've uh, I've enjoyed Eurovision as an event uh, every year. And for perhaps some of your listeners who don't know what Eurovision is, um, it's an annual event where the countries, predominantly in Europe, but it's grown over the years, have sent a song to represent their country every year. And then the whole of Europe watches and votes for their favourite song. Um, it's actually one of the longest running TV shows um, in history. So it's uh, it's been going on since the 1960s. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a great show that kind of was, it was viewed as a way of uniting Europe after the um, Second World War in terms of culture. Um, so it was a way of showcasing culture and promoting sort of, I don't know, international... Uh, cultural exchange. Uh, of course, it might not have uh, kept that ethos at heart uh, over the years. I think it's kind of grown into a bit of a gimmick, uh, particularly for British viewers, but it still retains a kind of big following uh, every year. And I'm kind of one of those people that enjoys watching it every year. But of course, due to the coronavirus, the uh, competition this year uh, was cancelled last minute. And I thought, uh, whilst everyone was in the first lockdown, we all needed a bit of a um, a bit of an escapism, a bit of respite from everything that was going on. And so I thought I would try and make a small scale Eurovision themed event for sort of my friends or at least my college. Uh, but it just so happened that it caught on. And within about 48 hours, I think, you know, it got shared by CamFest. So I think that helped a lot. And there was also a couple of articles written about it uh, in the Tab and Varsity, which also spread its popularity. Um, but it grew to a few thousand people um, very quickly. And by the time the, the final event came around, it was, um, yeah, a few thousand people, I think it was, who tuned in and voted. So that was uh, really cool. Cool. And uh, could you tell me about the process, like how it worked, the different stages? Initially, it was just like a Facebook event that I put up, which was scheduled for the, the week that Eurovision was meant to happen. And it would have just been uh, my friends basically voting on the songs. But as it grew, I kind of uh, saw that more people were interested. So what I did was I posted every day leading up to the competition, um, one song or one of the entries. There was about 40 entries. So this is about a month long process of posting each song. And people would comment on the songs and see if they liked it or not. And then we finally got to the actual week of Eurovision, which was basically where I published like a Google Forms and people could vote for the, um, their countries that they wanted to in the semi-finals uh, on the, the Tuesday and the Thursday of that week. And then the top 10 countries of each week would then go through to the final on the Saturday. And so then on that Saturday of the same week, um, the whole of Cambridge and beyond <laughs> voted for who they wanted to be their um, unofficial winner of Eurovision 2020. And on that, um, who was the winner and were you happy with that result? Uh-huh. So the winner was actually, I, I think this person would have won the entire competition anyway, or at least they would have been very high up. So I think the, the Canberra Vision result reflected the, um, the potential Eurovision result. Uh, so it was Iceland, and it was a song called Think About Things by uh, a solo artist and then a band that went with them. Uh, it was a very kind of niche, I, I, would say, I wouldn't say gimmicky, but I would say it was a very niche kind of upbeat and lighthearted song. It's one of those songs that wasn't the typical Eurovision entry. 
well, I mean, I say that it was <laughs> typical by Eurovision standards by being a bit out there, but um, it was atypical because usually the winners are like big sort of pop songs. And this was, um, I don't know, it was pop, but it was a bit kind of niche. And um, it seemed like what was intended to be a joke entry actually <laughs> did very well. Um, in terms of if I was happy about it, I liked the song. I had my favourites, um, but my Eurovision tastes aren't uh, reflective of everyone else's tastes. And that's not to say my tastes are any good. Uh, I think quite the opposite, actually. I think I have very poor taste in music. But um, yeah, my favourite entries were from other other countries. And, and I saw that Cambridge University uh, like did a, a feature on you. How did you feel about that? Did you feel like quite like a, a beanock after that? <laughs> I think there's the saying always goes if you call yourself a beanock are you really a beanock and it kind of loses its touch uh no I mean I've done it the reason why I think the university came to me partially was because I've done a lot of access work with the university before and so they'd pick I think they picked up on some of the stuff that I'd done and I'd already worked with some of the people in the comms department I think it was quite interesting to see people who um, from around the world who follow the Cambridge comms accounts uh, they didn't really know what Eurovision was or some of them were a bit surprised that uh, the academically rigorous institution of Cambridge University would spend so much time on what they deem to be um, maybe a waste of an event and you know what I don't blame them it's not it's not the most uh, highbrow event in the world but at the end of the day it was a bit of fun it was a bit of um, as I say before <laughs> the repeat job and word escapism it, it was a nice feeling that I think the that more people were able to see what was going on because it was published theatre has perhaps been one of the industries most affected by covid with changing guidelines frequently affecting how they can operate ordinary days a musical scheduled to be performed by Cambridge students at the ADC theatre on the 3rd to the 7th of November had its run cut short due to the announcement of a second lockdown Amber DeWright was the director and co-producer of this production. She tells us more about the logistics of the production and the morale of cast and crew. So you were the director and the co-producer of um, Ordinary Days this term. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? What, what's Ordinary Days about? So Ordinary Days is a brilliant little musical. It was off-Broadway in 2009. Uh, written by Adam Guan, and it basically tells the story of four New Yorkers whose all lives kind of all intertwine, kind of like in Love Actually, is how I always explained it. And um, it basically is all about finding the beauty in the ordinary days, finding the beauty in the little things, and appreciating that life might not always go as you planned, but that you can appreciate every every day and I think it was so important to have that message in this term and especially just before the lockdown it was so important to me to be able to sit in rehearsals and hear hear that message have them the actors sing that message and keep us all afloat really and uh, how were rehearsals for this organized like what were the changes so the cast was only four people um, which made life so much easier. And um, obviously the rule of six meant that in rehearsals we could only have well, six people. Luckily for us for Ordinary Days, there are only a few group numbers. Most things were solos or duets. So we had to organise it um, with, because everything was socially distanced as well, booking out big enough rooms for it to be myself, the MD, and whichever performers we needed. 
But the amusing part is um, the MD and I actually ended up in isolation for two weeks really early in the rehearsal process, meaning that we actually had to be on Zoom for two full weeks, really early full weeks of rehearsal. And again, our brilliant ADs were so great in kind of taking over and um, being in the rehearsal room, making sure everything was planned and organised um while having us there on a computer and i we pulled through and it was so much fun and again that provided a really much needed structure in isolation um but i really hope i wouldn't have to do that again that's that's all as far as i'll go and did you feel that kind of being socially distanced from the cast and crew kind of took something away from from the experience well What's quite funny is there is a a song in the show and it's the main reason I pitched it called um, The Space Between and so much of the show is about feeling distanced from your partner and from your friends and so I kind of went in with the mantra of like like, let's, let's use that, let's use that to the best of our advantage. I think when it came to, so obviously there's two sides of it, when it came to actually directing the, the production, it was hard, not ideal, but we ended up working with social distancing quite well, and that took effort, but it was kind of added an extra challenge to it, which was great. And when it came to the get-in and the tech rehearsal, especially where the crew were involved, it was frustrating, I think, a lot of the time. So when it got to the end of the shows or when we found out about lockdown, we all kind of wanted to run and give each other a big hug and we couldn't. But I think in a way it brought us closer in so many different ways because we really, it was such a we're all in this together atmosphere. And so obviously the second lockdown uh, came into force and and this meant that the production was cut short you could only do um, two nights of it what were the feelings among the cast and the crew about this so i actually got a message from joe who's our musical director at midnight when the the announcement when it was announced kind of oh we're going to go into another national lockdown when no dates had been announced yet saying don't check the news he was scared that I was fully going to kind of collapse. He was like, don't check the news, just don't do it. And we came in for a big stage rehearsal. So no costumes, no lights, no set, no anything, but just using the stage. And I said to the cast, I said, you know what? Not to be, not, I'm not being pessimistic. I'm not trying to like be fatalistic or anything, but enjoy this performance. I just said, throw everything you have into this performance. Pretend this auditorium is packed, packed, packed with people and give it your everything. Because I think there was an underlying sense for everyone of, if this is the last time, we are going to make it great. And then at the end of the rehearsal, we got the news. We looked at the the BBC app, flashed up, and it was locked down on Thursday. And it was the strangest relief. I got so many messages of condolences being like, oh, we're so sorry your show couldn't do its full run. Are you okay? Like, I was so many people asking if, if we were all okay. But to be honest, we were just so grateful to have two performances, an opening night and a closing night, that we really didn't, we didn't really mind that the, the run was going to be cut short. Obviously, it was sad and really not ideal, but so many shows, so many brilliant shows were really sadly cut short this term. 
football couldn't happen at all at the AEC. So we were just so, so excited that we could at least do two performances and be the last show of term. And um, I guess to end off with, are you hopeful for the future of theatre? I'm so hopeful. I'm so, so hopeful. I think I speak for anyone who went to see anything at the ADC this term, that even if you have to wear a mask, even if the bar isn't open and you have to social distance, there is nothing like being back in that space again. There are for so many people, the ADC is such a lifeline during term time and sitting in that theatre, you still get that magic. And I think people need that magic. So I think it will come back as soon as as soon as it can and with live streaming we've opened up a million access opportunities to people all around the world all around the country kind of family friends getting to see everyone's hard work and I think people need theatre I think people want theatre and as a result I think theatre will do everything it can to happen everyone in the theatre community has stayed so ridiculously positive and I think that's completely incredible. I was um, part of a, a show called Training Wheels. I was producing it um, that had cast members dropping like flies into isolation. And when it came to the performances, the writers and directors were like, right, let's mix it up. Let's let's make a script in three hours and do something great. And completely pulled it out, pulled it out of the bag. And it was a great show. And so many other performances just happened out of nowhere or dealt with really crazy situations, everyone gained so many transferable skills from doing such an incredible, like, odd term. So I really think everyone who was involved in any way in theatre this term should give themselves a pat on the back, a round of applause, because it was an incredible season for what it was. Here's a clip from the rehearsals of Ordinary Days to give you a taste of what the show is like. Don't worry. Everything will be okay. Okay, okay. Ready? You bet. On your mark, On your mark get set, set fly. fly. I'm fly. Look at them flying out high above us. Creativity in crisis, however, can be a struggle. Alex from Bait talks to us about the pressure to be productive during uncertain times. I certainly noticed at the start of lockdown that I felt a lot of pressure to go off and write my equivalent of Peeps' diary or whatever, to be like, this is me living through these great events, or to use that idea that people kept bringing up that Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a plague lockdown to be like, oh, this is my time to go away and write my novel. But um, in the end, I think I found that 
I, it just wasn't a good time to be creative um, in in any sort of sustained way. But the little tiny bits of creativity, like writing a little poem or a little journal entry or doing a small sketch was just a nice way to escape. Um, and I think, I think with Bait, we just kind of want to offer people a platform for that sort of escape quite a lot of the time. We loved how many people wrote about their families and their parents and their local environment um, for the last issue during the first lockdown. And I think that's the kind of creativity we'd like to play a role in encouraging, not just like go away and write your magnum opus, but rather just reflect and do however much you feel comfortable with. And here's a platform for it, if you'd like. While some have argued that lockdown has been a barrier to creativity, for others it has redirected focus on previously neglected areas such as making creativity accessible. Corona Prasad, the curator of the Hyong Gallery at Downing College, speaks to us about this. So am I right in saying you opened in 2016? We did, yes. So what, what was your work initially doing? The Young Gallery is a really exciting place to work in because it's an exhibition space. And so every three months or so, we're grappling with completely different works of art, artists, themes, motivations. We would populate our calendar with weekly student events, lots of working towards a symposium or a conference, lots of in-person events, lots of things that young people could do in the gallery. Last March, coronavirus hit university students. A lot of them went back home and Mm -hmm. obviously there were lockdown measures introduced. So what kind of happened to the gallery during that period? Were you able to continue at all? It was a very interesting time for us. We had opened an exhibition that I had curated and it was open for, I think, nine days before lockdown. Suddenly, it was not possible for visitors to actually see the works. But we thought so much about it. There were so many things in the pipeline that the first thing I did was set up a gallery blog, move a lot of content online, interview lots of artists. One of our gallery assistants who's training in graphic design came up with weekly family and children's activities that we could post online. And we did hold our symposium, but instead of the day-long in-person event in the Howard Theatre at Downing, it was split up over five days with sessions in the evening on each day. And actually, we realised that we were reaching out to audiences that we'd never been able to communicate Mm. with before. An in-person event might have 100 participants, but our online symposium had over 400 And we had well over 2,000 unique views of the blog content. A lot of it was from all over the country and even all over the globe. And was it hard to be doing that art at that time through quite a difficult period for obviously everyone? Well, for me, it actually gave me a real strong sense of direction and a sense of purpose. Being able to communicate at a time when everybody was locked away and you couldn't see people face to face that became a creative challenge for me and in a way we were able to explore things in far greater depth than we would have during the run of a normal exhibition it became a sort of mission for me and it still is 
to make sure that gallery content is available regardless of whether people can visit us in person or not. Oh yeah, that's actually an interesting point because when a lot of people returned back in September, was it possible to open the gallery again? And then I think actually something I was going to ask, which you've kind of alluded to, is maybe perhaps the difficulties of opening up, but certain individuals not being able to like kind of resume normal day life in the same way at that point? Indeed. So so we opened just for weekends, timed entry tickets in August. Um, so that, that spring exhibition that had been um, sort of shut down um, so early um, that people could actually come in and see it if they wanted to. But we were very aware that there were several people for whom that was a risk too far and who would not be able to return to the gallery in the same way. Our visitors who take public transport from, say, London or the Cambridgeshire countryside would not be able to physically come to the exhibition. And so that was definitely in my mind when we opened our new exhibition in October of um, drawings by Quentin Blake. The first things I did were two exhibition tours, virtual online tours, um, and they were attended by some people who we see very frequently in the gallery who just didn't feel able to come out. And so now we're in another lockdown. But do you think perhaps the transition this time has been somewhat easier? Have you been better prepared because of everything that was set up in lockdown 1.0? In some ways it is easier, but it's also in, in lockdown 1.0, we were on the back foot slightly and trying to create a response to the situation. Now we're thinking much more strategically about the future, about access in general, about how we can serve that very human need for creativity and connection in difficult circumstances. And that's a conversation that I think all institutions need to have Mm. because several people, for whatever reason, have had difficulties in gaining access to creative institutions, to educational institutions for a variety of reasons. And the lockdowns and the coronavirus crisis has all of that into sharp focus. And it's also created a sense of empathy because never before have such a large number of people experienced the everyday isolation that several people experienced as a matter of course in their daily lives because of a variety of health, socioeconomic um, reasons. And we have to think strategically about that in the future regardless of whether the doors are open or not. Are you hopeful that if and when art galleries and society is able to kind of resume again, that that kind of online kind of virtual presence, which, as you say, is more accessible uh, for significant and often marginalised parts of the population, Mm -hmm. are you hopeful and how likely is it, do you think, that that will continue? I think it's really important to try and I think it's really important to establish that kind of access as a principle. But a caveat to that is there really is no alternative to the physical presence of a work of art. That is something that we have to acknowledge. We have to hope that even if people can't see a work of art that we have on display, that some of the ways in which we're talking about that work of art 
inspire people who aren't there physically to experience their worlds in a deeper, more connected, more creative way. It would be wrong to suggest that this coronavirus period has been nothing but a positive time for students and staff to innovate. Nevertheless, some students have found that creativity has assumed an increased importance during these challenging times. For many, creativity has provided a welcoming break from the constant anxiety of the pandemic and given a sense of normality and community. Moreover, remote collaboration has shed a light on more inclusive and accessible ways of operating that many hope will continue after the pandemic. This episode has shown that creativity has not come to a halt during crisis, but has actually gained in importance. And as such, it's crucial that the arts industry is protected from the economic impact of coronavirus. Thank you for listening. And for joining us this term. You can read more on this topic at varsity.co.uk. Thank you to our contributors, Alex Hyman-Williams and Kate Horn from BAIT, Fred Duffin and Nanvet Murphy from Salon College Choir, Tom Gashi, creator of Canberra Vision, Amber DeWright, director and co-producer of Ordinary Days, and Peroni Prasad, curator of the Hyong Gallery. Thanks also to our production team, Matthew Cavallini, Georgia Goebel, Bea Melton, Tilly Head, Cameron White, Kate Pruden, Theo Fitzpatrick, Alex Oxford, Juliet Babinski, Sorrel Fenelon, and Matthew Jeffries. Switchboard will return next term with a new production team. So, from Maddie and I, thank you for listening. <laughs>